Hi everyone and welcome to Grace Point Online. My name is William and I'm so glad that you can join us for service today. Well, last week we covered the story of David and Abigail and we saw how Abigail saved David from making a terrible mistake by speaking truth to him. Now we learned that God has given Abigails to us to remind us of his vision for us so that we can make wise decisions, not foolish ones. Well, today we are continuing on in our series, and we're going to take a look at the account of David and Bathsheba. And Roy Lowe, who serves at our church in West Lafayette, Indiana, will be bringing the message today. Second Samuel 11 In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened one late afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Second Samuel chapter 11 is one of the most tragic, sordid chapters of the Bible, one that we wish didn't exist, but here it is. David takes the wife of his loyal bodyguard and exploits Uriah's unquestioned obedience to send him to his death. Now that act is bad enough, but David, as it turns out, has no idea the kind of bad that he just unleashed on his own family and the entire kingdom of Israel. The rest of 2 Samuel records the fallout. One of David's sons rapes his half-sister, causing her brother Absalom to murder that brother. All the while, David is silent, having lost all moral authority to govern even his own children. Later, Absalom comes to stage a coup to oust his own dad, and David barely escapes death. But in the ensuing civil war, tens of thousands perish in battle, including Absalom. When the dust finally settles, David's family and the entire nation has been utterly wrecked. And it all traces back to this late spring afternoon when David sinned sexually. The Bible says that sexual sin is serious. Our culture says that Christians are too uptight about sex. It's no big deal. As long as it's consensual, it's just fun. But we forget that God invented sex. He gave it to us as a wonderful thing to be enjoyed by a man and a woman within the bounds of marriage. And the better something is, the worse it can become when it is twisted and corrupted. From divorces and single-parent homes to abortions and depression, our world is exhibit A for the fallout of human sexuality taken out of bounds. 
What happened to David and what's happened to countless people in our culture serve as a sobering reminder that sexual sin is serious, which is why a loving God pleads with us to listen to him for our own good. But beyond sexual sin, I think what David did here is a case study of how someone, how anyone, even a mighty man of faith, could stumble and fall into sin. So I'd like to look at what are the ingredients in this recipe for ruin so that we might be able to take warning and avoid the next pitfall or temptation that may come our way. First, when does this whole thing happen? The story is set in verse 1, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. But King David doesn't go out to battle. Instead, he sends Joab and the army while he naps at home. But spring is not the time for kings to nap. It's time for war. And we can only wonder at how history might have been different had David not shirked his responsibility as king. Now, David wasn't always like this growing up. He was always out in the field as a shepherd boy protecting his flock. He was a teenager who went out to face Goliath. He was Saul's top general driving out the Philistines. But now that he's king, he makes the mistake of staying back and sending others to do the job. Now, we can characterize David's mistakes with three words that start with the letter I. And the first is idle. David was idle. Idleness, free time, me time, that sounds so good. And compared to that, the old adage that says, idle hands are the devil's workshop, sounds really naggy. It's naggy, but it's also true. I think if we're honest, all of us can remember a time when we did something we regretted because well, we had nothing better to do. Or maybe we decided to put off the good thing we know we should be doing so that we could just sort of, you know, wander around, maybe not on a rooftop, but on the internet where we can get a really good view of well basically anything we want david was idle but he was also isolated it's spring all israel's out there fighting but david's back home by himself and when david saw bathsheba he could have reacted in a variety of different ways he could have averted his gaze he could have suddenly come to his senses and and rushed out to the battlefield he could have turned to God in prayer as he so often did in his younger days when he was in trouble or distress. But he doesn't do any of those things. Instead, he takes one step and another step and another, first just allowing his gaze to linger and then his mind to wander and then to ask, who is this beautiful woman and where does she live? And then to bring her over and then to devise a way to cover up his sin. There were so many little steps which means there were many times when he could have stopped. But once David started sliding down that slippery slope, could he have stopped by himself? Theoretically, yes. But I think we all know that practically it would have been very difficult, even for a man of faith like David, to arrest that fall by himself. But what if David wasn't by himself? What if Joab was there? Or even better, Uriah? with him on that lazy afternoon what if they were there to remind david of his identity of his duties of his connections then i think david might have had a chance maybe a really good chance if he wasn't alone but perhaps that's exactly why david wanted to be alone so that left with only his own counsel he might be free to pursue his darkest desires why didn't david want other people to be around 
probably for the same reason why we sometimes don't want other people to be around, why people make a big deal today about privacy and personal space. For me, it's because with other people, I know I don't feel fully free sometimes to do what I want to do. I mean, I am free, like technically, since I'm in America and all, but I wouldn't be free socially because I would know that other people are looking and judging and maybe even shaming me. Of course, if I'm feeling social pressure from like gangsters, then that's the kind of peer pressure a godly person must resist. But if I'm surrounded by godly people who remind me to honor my commitments, then I think God would want me to submit to that good pressure, to strive for honor, to avoid shame, to fulfill my duties and vows in the presence of my peers and mentors and younger ones in the body of Christ, the church. But if that's not what I want to do, then isolation does start to look very appealing. So David was idle, he was isolated, he was also indulgent. He was a king, after all, with absolute power. That was the norm in all ancient kingdoms. But in Israel, things were supposed to be different. The king was supposed to wield his power under God's authority for the good of the people, not for satisfying his own desires. Instead, David used his power to indulge in his desire for a beautiful woman who was not his wife. That kind of abuse of power seems far-fetched for most people since none of us are kings today. But we have other ways of indulging ourselves, and our world encourages us to do so. We're told to follow our hearts, to pursue our desires, to do whatever makes us happy, as if indulgence is the only path to happiness and fulfillment. And anyone or anything that stands in the way of my desires must be evil. You know, in the media, characters who exercise self-restraint and even maybe impose it on others are portrayed as stiff, prudish, narrow-minded. And oppressed. But once Elsa throws off the restraints of tradition, even morality, once she declares no right, no wrong, no rules for me, then and only then is she free to explore and exercise the full extent of her powers and create for herself the life she deserves. Now to Disney's credit, Frozen does depict the ruin and destruction Elsa brings to her family and her kingdom. But of course, all of these negative consequences somehow neatly fade out to a happy ending before 90 minutes are up. King David, however, did not live a fairy tale life. He lived in the real world with real consequences for his actions, just like us. And idleness, isolation, and indulgence. This was the recipe for the most disastrous day in David's life leading to a sin that he will spend the rest of his life paying for, and not just him, but his family and his nation as well. In contrast to David, there is the example of Uriah the Hittite. Who was Uriah? He was Bathsheba's husband, but he was also one of David's most trusted soldiers, one of the elite mighty men who risked their lives to establish David as their king. Sadly, it's one of his most faithful and trusted men that David betrays. In contrast to David's idleness, isolation, and self-indulgence, here's what we see in Uriah when David summons him to the front lines to the palace in Jerusalem on the pretext of wanting a report of the battle. This is what happens after their meeting. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. 
But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David uh, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. So as David was engaged in adultery, where was Uriah? He was engaged in the battle, the battle that David should have been fighting, that David should have been leading. And Uriah was fighting because, well, that's his job. He's a soldier sworn to fight for king and country, even at the cost of his life. In contrast to David's idleness, isolation, and indulgence, Uriah's life can also be characterized with three R's. The first one being that he was responsible. Responsibility. That's not exactly an exciting word. I don't know if any high school seniors vote on who is most likely to be responsible. But if they did, probably nobody would want to win that title. Yet being responsible is a key trait of everyday heroes. The first responders standing ready to run towards danger instead of running away. The ER nurse showing up for yet another shift during yet another surge. The school teacher who continues her lesson talking to a sea of blank Zoom squares. The mom who wakes up in the middle of the night to yet another diaper blowout. Not all heroes wear capes, but all heroes are responsible. In his letter to his disciple Timothy, Apostle Paul describes Christian life using the analogy of a soldier fighting the good fight. A Christ follower, like a soldier, is about something. It's not just a label, it's an identity laden with responsibilities to fight a spiritual battle for souls to fight against the world the flesh and the devil to love God and to save people with the gospel message what are our responsibilities as Christ followers today if we find ourselves idle bored maybe we need to remind ourselves of the responsibilities we have from Scripture if we claim to call Jesus our King because our King did give us commands duties responsibilities to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, to pray for our enemies, to make disciples of all nations. The last time I've checked, we finished doing exactly zero of those tasks. So we've all got some responsibilities. The question is, are you going to ignore them and pursue a life of idleness? Or will you take them up every day as a good soldier of Christ Jesus? And as we take up our responsibilities, we might find that instead of shriveling and shrinking our lives, being responsible turns us into everyday heroes. Uriah was responsible. He was also relational. After receiving Uriah's report, David tells him, you know, go home, hoping that Uriah will sleep with his wife and thus cover up the fact that Bathsheba is now pregnant. But to the king's great surprise, that plan doesn't work. Uriah spends the night at the gate 
with the other palace guards. When David asks why, Uriah seems almost outraged that David would, would expect such a thing. Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah, the rest of the nation, dwell in booths and tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink, to lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives? I will not do this thing. He refuses to go home. But why? Because he's thinking. He's thinking about the ark. That's the gold box representing the presence of God out there on the field of battle along with the rest of the soldiers, including Uriah's friends, the mighty men, and his commander, Joab. Faced with the chance to go home and enjoy civilian life for a night, Uriah thinks not about his rights, but his relationships. And his relational world extends far beyond his nuclear family to his weary comrades spending yet another night out in the cold. With those relationships in mind, Uriah thinks not about what he could do, but what he should do. And we recognize that as a noble and a beautiful thing. Let's say it's finals time, but you finish a few days before the rest of your friends and there's this movie that just came out you all want to see, but you say to yourself, my friends and classmates and everyone else dwell in the library. They're napping on the floor, pulling all-nighters. Shall I then go to the theater and eat popcorn and drink soda and watch this movie without them? I will not do this thing. Now, that's kind of a silly example, but yeah, I think if you passed up the movie and used your money to buy snacks and bring them to your friends, that kind of relationship-affirming solidarity would be a beautiful thing. And you would be a more noble person for it. Uriah, he was physically far away from his fellow mighty men, but unlike David, he wasn't isolated. He wasn't alone with just his own thoughts, his own desires. He insisted on staying faithful to his friends and allowing his relationships to shape how he lives and acts in whatever context. Which is why I think Uriah was able to be restrained. Restrained. He had the right to go home. And in fact, David basically like commanded him to go home. But Uriah refused to exercise his right, and he exercised restraint instead. Self-restraint. It's so rare in our world where everybody seems to be indulging in their appetites and desires, pursuing self-fulfillment, self-satisfaction. But does the indulgent life really lead to the best self? I think David's example tells us otherwise. Whereas Uriah's restraint out of faithfulness to his responsibilities, to his relationships, that makes him the hero of this story. There's so much talk in our world, even in the church, about personal freedom and liberty and rights. And I mean, those are good things for sure. But the Bible says there's something else that we are to do with our freedom, and it's not to indulge in our own desires. In Galatians chapter 5, Apostle Paul writes, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. We're to use our freedom to restrain ourselves voluntarily so that instead we can serve and love others. Even though Uriah was a battle-hardened soldier, he was at the core a man of love. Love for God, for his country, for his king, for his fellow soldiers. When Apostle Paul talked about how Christians are to have that soldier's mindset, he notes that what makes a soldier a soldier is not his skill in combat, but the fact that 
No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. It's self-restraint and it's love to please the one who enlisted him. Now you might have noticed that Uriah's responsibility, relational faithfulness, and self-restraint is exactly what gets him killed. He refuses to go to his house and sleep with his wife, so David had to come up with another plan. And David knew Uriah was so responsible that David could have him carry his own death warrant to Joab. And Uriah would not only not peek at the order, but once given the command to attack an impossible target, Uriah would not hesitate to obey even to his death. So being responsible, relational, restrained doesn't mean everything will go awesome for Uriah and men dying in battle. All men die, but not all men die like heroes. And to live like Uriah does mean avoiding idleness, isolation, and indulgence. It does mean averting the disastrous outcome that David lived to see and to regret to his dying day. Now, thankfully for David, God's story with him continues. God sends a prophet to condemn David's actions, and to his great credit, David repents in dust and ashes. As a result, he would pen one of the most powerful psalms in the Bible, describing his repentance and showing the way, even now, for anyone who wants to turn back to God, that God is merciful and gracious, that he can, he does wash us of our iniquity, he does cleanse us from our sin. Ultimately, in the Son of David, we find out how a God of holiness and justice can forgive and cleanse sinners like David, sinners like us. Because on the cross, Jesus takes the punishment we all deserved. And that's good news for all of us. Because whether it's in the area of sexual purity or something else, all of us have sinned. But all of us can repent. As the Bible says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And having been cleansed, each of us have a new beginning with God and a new future that God calls us to where we can aspire to become fishers of men, to be harvest workers, to be ambassadors for Christ, reconciling people to God. The only thing that can derail us from that future is us is if we choose the idle, isolated, and indulgent life. But there is another way, and through Uriah, we see the path that we wish David could have taken, a path that you and I can still take today to embrace responsibility, relationships, and self-restraint instead. Thank you, Roy, for that message. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message as we consider the terrible things that can happen out there to us, we pray that we would take uh, the message and the lessons that you've given to us today uh, to heart. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, we would be mindful of uh, the, the temptations and the dangers that are out there and help us, Lord, to look to David's example as well as Uriah's example to give us warning and to give us encouragement. Father, please help us to make the proper steps. And I pray that you would uh, be with all of us and uh, pray that uh, you would uh, watch over us as we continue on in our journey to loving you and pursuing you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, that's our message for today. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.